Hello, my name is Thomas, and welcome to this latest episode of British Culture, Albion Never Dies. Today, I'm looking at James Bond in Istanbul, Part 2, in Fleming 2. I'm looking at chapters 14 and 15 in From Russia With Love, but if you haven't read the book, don't worry, there's still plenty of good content here, and if you haven't listened to the first episode, it's only 16 minutes long, but don't worry, these are designed to work independently or as part of a set, as you prefer. Of course, if you have listened to it, hopefully you'll add more. And if you've read the book or are reading the book, again, it'll add more. But if you haven't read the book, I'm not going into any major spoilers. I'm just looking at some of the key locations and their real-world significance beyond the book. So, I'll start straight away with the hotel where James Bond is staying. It's called the Crystal Palace in the book, as mentioned in the previous episode. I mentioned why it amuses Bond to stay in a hotel called the Crystal Palace, not just due to the the modern football team, but James Bond, the literary character, probably remembers the fire that burned down the original Crystal Palace. But it's based very much on the Pera Palace, with many of the details flipped. Ian Fleming stayed at the Pera Palace, which was founded in 1892, and it has Ian Fleming's picture displayed, perhaps appropriately enough, in the bar, which is a very, very beautiful uh, kind of lounge, and connects to the main tea lounge, which is one of the big reception rooms in the hotel. I've stayed there a number of times, and I've had a couple of guided tours of the most important room for the most important guest, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, the first president of Turkey. Um, But I'll go into that a little bit later. This is primarily a James Bond episode of this podcast. So I mentioned some of those details were flipped between the real Pera Palace and the fictitious Crystal Palace. So in the book, Fleming writes, he turned on a cold bath and shaved patiently with cold water. Fleming is... uh, very judicious with his words. The books are condensed. He very rarely uses too many words, and here he uses the same adjective twice. Cold, cold. For the Pera, when it had the grand opening ball in 1895, it was the only hotel in Istanbul with hot water, and was still being reported as such five, ten years later in the early 1900s. It also incidentally had an electric elevator, only the second in the world after the Eiffel Tower. And again, staying at the hotel, I've popped along to the front desk and asked if I can uh, have a demonstration. And what can I say? You are stepping back in time. It's a piece of history. It was the first elevator um, in Turkey, but again, it's only the second in the world. Um, And it is great fun to, I don't know, pop in, you get closed in, man press the button. You know how elevators work. But still, it's the original, I believe the original mechanism still, and it is just one of those stepping back in time moments. When Bond's breakfast arrives, he has yoghurt, green figs and Turkish coffee. Um, the Para Palace does have yoghurt and green figs if you want to have it. You could have coffee for breakfast. In Turkish, the word for breakfast is uh, kavalta, which is sometimes said to mean cafe altında, or underneath coffee. So you have your breakfast first, then you have your coffee on top. A few people have commented that they probably wouldn't have Turkish coffee for breakfast, um, and I've more commonly seen tea, but of course at the Pera Palace you could, you could have whatever you like. Um, genuinely, their, their lunch, sorry, their breakfast down in the buffet uh, is fantastic. It's a full Turkish breakfast, and uh, if you want to know exactly what that means, of course you can search pictures, you can look online, but I really think it's something to be experienced. I took my wife there uh, years ago now, and she still remembers it very, very happily. Um, it is a breakfast to remember. 
James Bond watches kayaks from his window. Now, a kayak, C-A-I-Q-U-E, is a boat of five to six metres in length, about a metre in width, used mainly for transportation. It's got a shape similar to that of a skate, and both ends of it are in a form that could be rowed in either direction with equal ease. It's from a French word, kayak, from Italian, kayako, from a Turkish word, kayak, the source of the word alone from the Greek kaiki, and ultimately the English word as well from the Ottoman Turkish uh, kaik. <laughs> Funnily enough, it bears no connection etymologically with the word kayak. <laughs> Interesting how similar languages can create similar things but for different reasons. Bond has his breakfast out on the balcony. Um, I went down actually to the to the restaurant to have mine, but you can have it brought up. Anyway, he's he's looking out at the Golden Horn. Uh, the Pera Palace has these lovely little balconies, uh, so you can watch over the city, and you look towards what in Turkish is called the Halic, which is, of course, the Golden Horn. The Golden Horn is the waterway that uh, cleaves through um, the European side of Istanbul, and James Bond in the Pera district is on the north, looking down. And it's from that perspective that at sunset you see the sun glistening um, on the water and it does indeed look very, very golden. And of course the shape of the water is like a horn. So as I say, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And it's very, very clean waterway for such a busy waterway. Surprisingly clean. Um, I've taken small boats along, uh, small ships, and I've seen dolphins uh, swimming behind us. Um, so it is very, very clean. And uh, on the Galata Bridge you can see chaps fishing, and it's all fish restaurants along. Anyway, it's a wonderful, wonderful place. Um, and... Bond is presumably looking down, he can see the Galata Bridge, he can see the Spice Market, he can probably see uh, the ferry port, um, where he can take a small ferry to the Prince's Islands, which is, I'd say, one of the little-known gems of Istanbul, a bit like Hong Kong. Hong Kong is an amazing city, and Kowloon is very striking, but it's very rare that you see a movie or a TV show that goes out to the islands, which are, I'd say, Isle of Tranquility, and it's much the same as the Prince's Islands, in that you've got these little islands on which cars are forbidden, unless it's an emergency vehicle, uh, for example, fire, police, ambulance, but it's all bicycles or horses. Um, you do see it on Turkish television, often if they want a historical drama, say about the, the old Ottoman aristocracy, they'd film it there, and in fact, I've seen them doing it as as cycling along on a rental bike uh, and I suddenly saw a horse and cart coming towards me and a whole film production crew um, happily gliding past me. They'd zoned off the roads. Uh, but this is, this is where they might film some of the real Turkish dramas uh, because you've got the beautiful old Ottoman mansions on these islands. Anyway, Bond doesn't go there. He's looking, I say, from the Pera district down at the Golden Horn Archaeological records show that people have lived in the Golden Horn going back to the 7th century before Christ, with some settlements going back uh, to about 6,700 BC. So it is thought. And this is, as I say, the European side, and on that southern bit of the European side, um, this is where, say, old Constantinople, the centre of the Byzantine Empire, was really there. And so they had a number of security measures. If, for example, the old Byzantine walls are down there, Bond would need pretty good eyes to see them, <laughs> but they are there. And, of course, uh, going back 
very, very long way, you'd have a metal chain that goes across the Golden Horn to stop ships coming in and attacking from the sea. Um, this was only disturbed three times, um, once in the 10th century, the second in 1204, but the third time was in 1453, the date of the Ottoman conquest of Istanbul. This chain is legendary, the chain that went across the Golden Horn and protected it from all comers until the Ottomans came. And I've seen it. Uh, it's not hugely advertised, but you can go and see this piece of almost mythological, to my mind, history, uh, and you can see it in the Turkish Military Museum in Istanbul. Not perhaps the easiest thing to get to, you can't walk to it from the Pera district, uh, you'd have to take a taxi or a bus, uh, but it is to my mind, one of the most impressive military museums anywhere in the world. Many military museums will show you the stuff our lads used. The Turkish Military Museum show you the stuff our lads took. So you can see things from Greece, you can see things from Central Asia, you can see things from Africa, you can see the wherewithal of three continents gathered here, including uh, China from the Korean War. Much of it is signed very well in Turkish and not so well in English when I went there, say, about 10 years ago, I think, maybe more. So for a non-Turkish speaker, you might need a tour guide and you might also miss the chain as it's round a little corner. One thing you would not miss is the Janissary Band. The Janissary Band is a spectacular band and it's thought to be the oldest military band in the world. As it, uh, in terms of unbroken history. They didn't close down and restart at some point. And so I went along into a cinema, sat down and watched a really good film all about them. And the noise of the band got louder and louder and louder. And then suddenly the screen of the cinema raised up and the band itself came in <laughs> and performed. And it was a real, real spectacular. Plenty of history in Istanbul. But right now, let's say if we're reading from Russia of Love, chapter 14, we're still in the Para Palace. Why did Ian Fleming stay there? And is he the most famous author ever to stay there? Perhaps not. Agatha Christie stayed there, and she had written Murder on the Orient Express whilst she was staying there. It's thought that she wrote it in room 411. That's where she always stayed, uh, so it is rumoured that she wrote it there, certainly at the Pera Palace, uh, in some hallways that would display her book in several languages, toy trains, the Orient Express. And so now, room 411 is the Agatha Christie room. It still has all its original antique furniture and plenty of materials to acknowledge the departed author. It has a library of books, uh, Agatha Christie books published in several languages, a replica of her typewriter, and I say it's all designed to be as Agatha Christie would have recognised it. In fact, the lounge of this hotel, the perfect place to enjoy tea, coffee, Turkish delight, the lounge is where I first read Murder on the Orient Express, a book I'd heard a lot about, and uh, amazingly I'd managed to dodge the spoiler of what happens and who is the murderer. So uh, I, was, I was very, very lucky, I feel, to read that and get all the twists and turns of the novel in the place where it was written. There are a number of legendary suites, the Matahari Suite, Ernest Hemingway suite, Pierre Lotti suite, 
the senior suite, the Alfred Hitchcock suite, and the presidential suite, named after uh, King Edward VIII of England and the Austro-Hungarian Emperor Franz Joseph. But there is no Ian Fleming suite yet, so something for us all to work on. One room that you cannot stay in, because it's sealed and temperature controlled for the preservation of its materials, is room 101. That is the room where Mustafa Kemal Ataturk stayed in the hotel, the first president of Turkey who reformed the country completely from the Ottoman era to the modern era, changing everything about the country, its education system, making Turkey democratic, um, rights for women, and changing even the alphabet and the language. His notes, uh, when I've seen his original writing, is actually quite hard to read. It's in the old Ottoman script, or he would have said himself that his French was very bad, so he'd write in French, or I say it what looks like Arabic, because it's in the old Arabic alphabet, but is in fact uh, Ottoman, which is extremely difficult. There are, in the modern day, people whose full-time profession is translating works from the Ottoman script to the Turkish script that is not straightforward at all. And it's the reason why only about 10% of Ottomans could read or write, as opposed to modern Turkey, which is one of the highest literacy rates in the world. Anyway, you can see why Kemal Ataturk staying in this hotel is such an important thing, and they do indeed open it uh, twice a day, between 10 and 11, and 3 and 4 every day for, um, for tourism, but you have to book uh, in advance, um, and it is limited numbers. I, again, I feel very, very lucky that I've done this tour a couple of times, and they do have some of his personal belongings, um, books and gifts given to him, newspapers of the time, so you can get a real sense of, of what it was like when Kemal Ataturk stayed. And again, it's just the hotel staff who guide you around, but I thought they were fantastic, very, very informative. Um, I've had the tour in English and in Turkish, and I have to say, the staff members that do it know all that they should know and more, and are very, very good at explaining it. But... It is time for us to leave the Para Palace Hotel. <laughs> that is one of the dangers of the hotel. You're staying in one of the most interesting, beautiful cities in the world, but you're very tempted just to stay in the hotel because it is so nice. But, as Ian Fleming wrote, punctually at nine, the elegant rolls came and took him through Taksim Square and down the crowded Istakal and out of Asia. This is one of the curious bits out of Asia. Um, because, of course, uh, Istikar Jadesi is in Europe. Anyway, it's the main shopping street with uh, the iconic Istanbul trams and many modern uh, European streets. So this is the, say, the new Turkey uh, of the 1920s, the 1930s, you know, going forward to the 50s uh, when Fleming was writing. So they are going through what is very much the new Turkey. Then they go across the Galata Bridge, across to the narrow, cobbled streets, parallels the waterfront, and go to a great vaulted go-down, uh, which is a word in English from Tamil, meaning warehouse. Common in Indian English and therefore in British English. I'm not sure if go-down is quite so common in American English. But Bond goes from this new Republic Turkey to the old Ottoman Turkey. Galata, by the way, is the district next to Pera. We see the Galata Tower in The World Is Not Enough. Uh, and one of the establishing shots of the city seems to have been taken from there. Again, I've been up to the tower and uh, all around, which some people feel <laughs> it's quite precarious to go around the tower on the outside, but yeah, it's safe enough. I've taken a picture and it does seem to almost exactly match the establishing shot there. So uh, anyway, Galata Tower has its own history and the Galata Bridge 
is now in its fifth incarnation, completed in 1994. We see older versions in uh, the 1960s film as Tatiana catches a ferry. So that area has changed around a lot, but the features, um, the the ferries, the trams, uh, the bridges, it's all much the same. It has been rearranged a little. Bond goes into a place where there's a cool, musty scent of spices and coffee, so the Grand Bazaar uh, is used in the movie, and this is later confirmed in the book. It's the, the spice market there. So that gets into what is the Grand Bazaar. It's a, it's a hum, or a collection of four major hans connected, all connected together. And it's very slowly developed over time. Some people say it's the world's oldest shopping mall. They started building around 1455-56, a few years after the uh, the Ottoman conquest of the city. Um, I do find it interesting. There's a very different outlook between Brits and Turks on imperial history. So imperial British history um, is viewed as complex, you know, there's always the discussion of did the British Empire do more good than harm. Um, it is, <laughs> I'd say, a very difficult topic for a lot of Brits. Whereas for most Turks, I've never found it such. You know, in the age of empires when everyone was conquering everybody, the Turks were the best. And now in the modern democracy, they've got a great democracy. So they tend not to view it with the same, perhaps, negative light that many Brits view the British Empire. The Turks are very happy to talk about we conquered this bit, now we have it. Um, but the Hans themselves were actually instrumental to financing their empire. It is the basis of the Silk Road. Anywhere along the Silk Road, going through Central Asia, you can find them. They're like mini fortresses. From the outside, they look like a fortress. You go through and it's a courtyard on the inside uh, with shops. If it's a two-floor one, then you've got shops on the bottom floor, then a hotel effectively on the top floor often a masjid like a little Muslim chapel on the inside with of course fresh water uh, for ablutions and of course uh, water supply for all the animals that you'd need um, but they are really interesting especially because like any empire they had their standard design you can see them for example in Cyprus there's a really good Buyukhan, a uh, big Han in Cyprus uh, which is very very well preserved and is now home to all kinds of artisan shops but you can find them all around turkey so when you go into the grand bazaar if you know this and you're familiar with the design it's a lot easier to navigate because again it's not just one standard design it's 61 covered streets in the grand bazaar over 4,000 shops total area of around 30,000 square meters um, sort of tracks somewhere between quarter of a million and 400,000 visitors daily, at least in a regular year, say pre-pandemic. Um, in 2014, it was listed as number one among the world's most visited tourist attractions with 91 million annual visitors. Uh, so it is crowded, but it is also vast. Uh, certainly I find it, you walk in one entrance, it can be quite challenging to find your original entrance out quite easy to find another and once you're outside you can navigate fairly happily in the old Ottoman kind of districts of the city but it is certainly worth a visit and uh, well James Bond has been there twice <laughs> Sean Connery and uh, from Russia of Love and of course Daniel Craig and Skyfall rode a motorbike over it I believe released in the same year that one of the Taken movies had Liam Neeson running across it so I always wonder if you watch the movies carefully can you see Liam Neeson in the background of the Bond film and can you see uh, Daniel Craig in the background of the Taken movie anyway it's a great location I can see why they keep going back now let's talk coffee because in the movie from Russia of Love um, 
coffee is ordered two medium sweet and occasionally if I mention coffee especially the Bond fans they say oh two medium sweet which is a bit funny um certainly <laughs> most men in Turkey uh, have sade they have black you know plain coffee um ladies often take it with sugar uh, but men real men <laughs> often take it without in the book Darko asked do you like your coffee plain or sweet in Turkey we cannot talk seriously without coffee or raka and it's too early for raka and Bon replies plain so it's funny Fleming obviously has this detail he did travel uh, to Istanbul and his tour guide is the man who allegedly inspired Darko Karim or Karim Bey from the film um, Bey just meaning mister um, and Fleming describes it as good but thick with grains, which, to be honest, immediately makes me wonder, oh, it's Amici, uh, because that is a really good Turkish coffee, which is thick, and but often with grains. <laughs> they drink a lot of it as they talk. Raka, by the way, is later described as identical to Uzo, the Greek national drink. Um, yeah, would you drink Raka over business? Well, darker Korean would, but then he started off his life, you know, bending bars with his teeth and so on, has a quite a wild wild background anyway the chauffeur leads the way up the shallow worn steps and into the fog of exotic scents shouting curses at the beggars and sack laden porters <laughs> just a little line sorry that's uh, that's when bond is later going back to the same place always makes me think of uh, a nasruddin story uh, nasruddin is uh, a muslim judge from i think the 14th century in turkey um and he, he, you know, like judges in all medieval countries, he travelled around the country dispensing uh, his judgments. Uh, for for Nasruddin, it was mainly in kind of Anatolia. Anyway, he has this story with uh, a porter known as Hamal, in that he he has stuff moving around. He's always moving around. He hires a Hamal, a porter, to to take his things and take them to the next city. Someone quite valuable. Uh, Nasruddin goes to the next city, he doesn't see the porter, he starts looking round and round, can't find him, it seems the porter has disappeared with all his things. Two weeks later, Nasruddin is travelling in a village and he sees the Hamal, he sees the porter, and so he hides. And a villager says, why are you hiding? And Nasruddin says, he, he took my things and he's been, he's, he took them away for two weeks. And the villager says, well, well, don't you want to go after him? And Nasruddin says, oh no, 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 I know how much he was charging me for a day. I dread to think how much he's charging me for two weeks. <laughs> I love the Nasruddin Hodger stories. Anyway, probably a story well known to uh, Karen Bay, who comes from Trebizond, uh, which is, I guess, in Anatolia, more on the Black Sea coast. When I've read this and reread this, I've always felt that darker Korean from the books is Alaz Turk, about whom there are many, many humorous stereotypes. Um, not to be coy about it, they're, they're thought to be very good-looking, dumb, blonde fishermen. <laughs> they are famous for the myths and sagas, you know, often do with the Black Sea and the uh, Caucasian mountains. Um, so they have an ancient religion, in fact, the famous fairy tale of, you know, the Greek myth, the Greek myth, rather than fairy tale, of the Golden Fleece, where Jason and the Argonauts steal the Golden Fleece from the king of... 80s uh, is thought to be from an ancient Laz kingdom, the kingdom of Cochlis. 
Anyway, their history dates back to, again, 13 centuries before Christ. You find a lot of history in these places. And, of course, their ancient kingdom was conquered by Greeks and then Romans, specifically Pompey the Great, um, an ally of and an enemy of the Roman Giza, Julius Caesar. All this to say the Laz have quite a uh, history. By the way, just as Julius Caesar touching Turkish history, you know, Caesar gives us the European words Kaiser and Tsar, uh, but it does give us the Turkish word Cezar, uh, which means brave. Snapping back to the Laz people, um, one of the stereotypes gives us the old joke. Um, a teacher in Trebizond asks his students, uh, what is this, when he shows them a skeleton, and the best student in the class puts up his hand and says, teacher, it is human fish bones. <laughs> Fleming, by the way, comments on the startling blue eyes of Darko Karim. And uh, Darko Karim kind of distances himself from the darker kind of mass of Turks. He, he seems to have a feeling of superiority, a certainly of distance. Um, and, of course, there is a difference between the Laz and the Anatolian Turks. It goes back, well, as I say, 13th centuries before Christ. Um, but two people who've lived side by side for so long naturally have an interesting, complex, and intertwined history, especially as uh, Darko Karim, and certainly his father, who's re referred to in the book, will have very strong memories of Ataturk's reforms, as Ataturk really created modern Turkey. And of course, it's fairly well known outside Turkey, you know, disputes between Turks and Kurds, but of course it's all ethnic people within the region, because every people have a right to self-determination, according to the UN Charter, but there's no definition of what is a people. Are the Laz a people? Are the Turks a people? And so on and so on. So there was, to, to be fair, a lot of complexity going around at the time. At the time, uh, the Laz people's culture was not celebrated. It's fairly recently that it has been celebrated. But I feel some of that interplay in the book between Darko Karim and the Anatolian Turks, some of his attitudes probably come from this. It's never specifically said, by the way, that he is a Laz Turk, but he just happens to conform to a lot of stereotypes about Laz Turks. Again, something that I feel Ian Fleming was a very keen observer of the countries that he visited and was very straight about them. Um, his view was often very to the point, and I feel when he writes Darker Karim, he encapsulates some of that. The next place that Bond goes is the Tunnel of Rats, the Basilica System, <laughs> or Yerapatan Sanature. Now that is actually my number one recommended place for anyone visiting Istanbul, and possibly the Gypsy Camp, which in the movie is the Byzantine Walls, uh, but I feel that these are tales for next time. Again. All these episodes you can listen to separately. You don't have to read the book to hopefully get something out of this. Um, but if you have, then hopefully this adds. I'll draw to a close and say thank you very much to everybody listening. Of course, if you want to message me, then I'm Fleming Never Dies on Instagram. Although I also run the James Bond Turkey account, uh, so you're welcome to message me there. I try and keep my connection in with Turkey, and of course I practice my Turkish regularly. Uh, so thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions, message me. Any requests, message me. Um, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.